This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed, your weekly hour of old-time radio crime heard every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Before we get to our shows this week, a quick reminder to visit relicradio.com where you can find past episodes of this show, more from the series you're going to hear today, our shoutcast stream, and if you'd like to help support this and all of the shows, help keep them coming every week, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on the link on the website. Your support makes all of this possible. My thanks, as always, to those who have. And now, this week, we'll begin with the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes and the Limping Ghost, his story from September 3rd, 1945. That's followed by The Secrets of Scotland Yard and The Special Branch, their episode from November 16, 1953. That Rewind brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another of his fascinating stories about his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. You know we're really happy to be back with you once again, and we're looking forward to getting together at this time every week from here on out. And I hope you won't mind if every once in a while I sort of get a word in edgewise about Petri wines. You know, and I really mean this, Petri wines are wonderful wines. For instance, right now, I wish I could give you a glass of Petri California port. You could hold that Petri port up to the light and look at its clear, deep red color. You could smell that luscious grape aroma. And best of all, you could taste that Petri port. What a flavor. That Petri port just sort of rolls around on your tongue, and oh boy, is that ever good. Try Petri port after dinner some evening, or try it when some friends drop in. You can serve it proudly because, after all, the name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines. And now let's look in on our good friend, Dr. Watson, and see if he's expecting us. Come in. Come in, Mr. Bartow. You're just the man I've been expecting. How are you, Dr. Watson? It's good to see you again. Thank you, my boy. It's very nice to see you again, too. I've missed our Monday night visits during the last three months. Sit yourself down. Uh, Would you care to join me in a a glass of port? Thanks, Doctor. That'd be nice. You know, it seems to me after our summer vacation, a toast to the great Sherlock Holmes would be in order. That's an excellent idea. Here you are, young fellow, my lad. Thanks. You propose the toast, Doctor. Sherlock Holmes, master detective and loyal friend, whose adventures have brought considerable, we say, fame to a certain retired doctor now living in Northern California. I'll drink to that. Well, now, suppose I might as well get on with tonight's story. Which particular adventure have you selected, Doctor? One that I call the Limping Ghost. Sounds exciting. And, as usual, you find me saying, how did it begin? In Baker Street on a windy December evening at the turn of the century. A young, white-faced boy sat in front of our blazing fire. And as he told us his strange story, the flickering firelight danced weird patterns on the walls. The young man was Alexander McMorris, the seventh Earl of Loch The Earl of Loch Say, uh, didn't I read in the papers the other day that the eighth Earl of Loch had been killed in an airplane accident? Quite right, my boy. Even in this day and age, the tragic history of violent death seems to dog the footsteps of the Loch family. But to return to my story. On that December night in 1900, 
we heard the whole history of the limping ghost of Loch Nair. The first earl had lost a foot at the Battle of Flodden Field in 1513. In spite of this terrible handicap, he fought on valiantly until he died on the battlefield from loss of blood. From then on, right until the time this story begins, the limping ghost, clad in a suit of armor, always appeared at Loch Nair Castle before and after the death of the current earl. Yes, Mr. Bartell, it was a strange story that Sherlock Holmes and I listened to that night. A story of death and horror over the centuries, punctuated by the limping clank of ghostly armor. Milady, I have terrible news for you. Your husband, the Earl, was killed in the explosion that destroyed Lord Darnley. Milady, the Guy Fawkes plan to blow up the Houses of Parliament has failed. Your husband is in the Tower of London. They say he's to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Madam, I regret to inform you that your husband, on my instructions, has been arrested for murder. I have no doubt that he will be hanged. And that's the story of the Loch Nairs, Mr. Holmes. You were instrumental in sending my great-uncle to the gallows, a fate which he richly deserved, I'm told. So it seemed only natural to come here to Baker Street and consult you now that I'm in trouble. I shall be most happy to do anything I can to help you, sir. I don't remember anything about your sending the Earl of Loch Nair to the scaffold home. Well, he did, Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. And the servants have always sworn the ghost really did walk at midnight on the day that he was hanged. Indeed. Now, sir, I suggest that you tell us what problem brought you here. The ghost is walking again, Mr. Holmes. You know what that means. According to the legend, that the present Earl will die. Exactly. And as I'm the present Earl, <laughs> you can see why I'm rather worried. Am I to understand that you've actually seen this ghost yourself? Yes, Mr. Holmes. The night before last, Betty, well, that is, Miss Nolan and I, were sitting in the dining hall in front of the fire when we heard a strange sound up in the musician's gallery. We looked up and in the moonlight saw a ghostly figure in armor limping towards the staircase. Oh, gracious me. Uh, my dear sir... You're certain that you really saw it? Moonlight can play strange tricks, you know. There wasn't any doubt about it, Doctor. We both saw and heard it. What did you do? I started to go towards the stairs, but as I did so, Betty screamed and then tumbled to the floor in a heap. Mm. Fainted, I suppose. Yes. While I was reviving her, the, the ghost disappeared. Who's staying with you at Loch Nair Castle at the moment? Well, there's Betty Nolan. She's the sister of James Nolan. He looks after my estate. Uh, Betty and I are engaged to be married. Oh, congratulations, sir. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyone else staying with you? Yes, a distant cousin of mine, Jeremy K. McMorris, an American. He turned up in England a couple of months ago with his son, Walter. They're both with me at the present. A distant cousin. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Actually, the descendants of a more than usually black sheep branch of the family. I, uh, I don't know how long the old man's going to be with us, though. If you ask me, he's a dying man. Why do you say that, sir? As far as I can gather, he's been wasting away for years. It's only a question of time before his strength fails him entirely. I uh, <clears throat> was hoping perhaps you could take a look at him, Dr. Watson. That is, uh, if I could persuade you and Mr. Holmes to come and stay at the castle for a few days. Well, what about it, Holmes? It's an intriguing problem, Watson. The current Earl of Loch Nair would seem to be in danger. A cousin of his is dying of an obscure disease, and the ghost of Loch Nair Castle is walking again. Yes, it's an irresistible invitation. I see no reason why we can't leave on the Scotch Express tonight. <laughs> 
Quite a heavy fall of snow here in your absence, young man. Quite so. Judging from the color of the sky, there's more to come. Uh, very angry looking. Mm. Oh, now as we round this bend, you'll be able to see the castle. Ah, yes. There you are, gentlemen. <laughs> Magnificent. Yes, it's a fine place, all right, Doctor, though it cost me a great deal in upkeep. Matter of fact, I only have one wing open. It's always been something of a problem to get servants to come and live here. See, the local villagers have a great respect for the Loch Nair ghost, you know. What servants do you have at the castle at present? A cook housekeeper, Mrs. McClintock, fine old lady who's been with me for six years now. And then there's old Tamas. He served my family for as long as I can remember. Well, as a matter of fact, there he is now. Hello, Tamas. I'm glad to see you back, my lord, and that's a fact. Oh, thank you, Tamas. Oh, these gentlemen are Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson. Good, good day to you, gentlemen. Good day, Thomas. Good day. Uh, before I take the trap round to the stables, I may as well break the news to you. Yes, what's happened, Tamis? It's your cousin, my lord. Poor old Mr. McMorris, he's dead. What? Died early this morning. God rest his soul. Dead? I'm very sorry that I arrived too late to be of any help. Well, thank you for telling me, Tamis. Oh, you may take the trap round now. Aye, sir. I'll bring the baggage up later. So he's dead. Well, I can't say it's unexpected, but... It is a shock, nevertheless. I'm sure that it must be, particularly as you yourself told us you saw the ghost of Loch Nair the night before last. In which case... In which case, Watson, I think we may reasonably expect another visitation. Perhaps before the night is over. Shall we go in? This is Miss Nolan, my fiancée, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and Dr. Watson. I'm very glad to meet you. How are you, Miss Nolan? And uh, this is her brother, James Nolan, the manager of my estate. How do you do, sir? How are you, Mr. Nolan? Much better for seeing you both up here. I'm sure it won't take you long to lay this ghost business by the heels. Oh, well, I trust you don't overestimate our abilities, Mr. Nolan. Alec, you've heard about your cousin, of course. Oh, yes, my dear. Tamas told us as we drove up. Where's Walter? He went into the village with the doctor and... The body of his father. Oh. He should be back soon. How's he taking it? Very quietly. Too quietly, if you ask me. Those Americans are pretty demonstrative people, you know. And Walter's been no exception. But he behaved very strangely this morning. And the doctor told him his father was dead. He just said, now things will start to happen and then shut up like an oyster. I can't make head or tail of the fellow. Uh, yes, quite so, quite so. Uh, Mr. Holmes, I expect you and Dr. Watson would like to go to your room. Yes, I must confess. I think I'd first like I'd like to... to take a look at the um, musician's gallery, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, of course. Would you excuse us, darling? Oh, all right, Alec. It's uh, in the dining hall here. <laughs> they must have been very hospitable people in those days. Fifty or sixty people could eat at that table. <laughs> yes, Doctor. Needless to remark, we hardly ever use the room nowadays. There's the musician's gallery, Mr. Holmes. Oh, yes, yes, I see. How do we get up there? I'll show you. See, there's a stone staircase behind this tapestry here. Follow me. Watch your step. It's quite narrow, rather dark. Watch your head, Watson, old chap. Oh, don't worry about me, Holmes. I'm perfect. Oh, I say. Must have built these stairs for pigmeat. Oh, yes. Here we are, gentlemen. This is the musician's gallery. Right, Joe. You must have made a pretty picture in the days gone by. 
a little string orchestra fiddling away up here and down below the Scottish nobility bobbing and floating round in the intricacies of a Highland chatiche or a stately gavotte or something. Where does that door lead to? To the bedroom wing. And that's where the ghost appeared from the other night, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Uh-huh. Door's jar. Do you generally keep this door unlocked, sir? Why, no. But the key mysteriously disappeared about a week ago. James is having a new one made. So I must remind him about that. Alex! Alex, oh. oh, we're up here, Walter. We're coming down. That's Walter McMorris. My dead cousin's son. Poor fellow, this must be a dreadful day for him. Yes, I'm afraid this is going to be a rather painful interview. Oh, hello, Walter. This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sherlock Holmes, sir. I've heard about you and your friend, Dr. Watson. Walter, old man, I'm dreadfully sorry about your father. Are you now? Isn't that nice of you? Well, you'll be sorry enough when you hear that I'm going to take you to court and prove that I'm the real Earl of Loch Ness. Walter, you're out of your mind. Am I? No. Father was out of his because he kept quiet all these years. But I'm going to have my rights. I've looked up the records. I've had genealogists working for months. And I've got all the facts that prove you're an imposter. Oh, man, what are you talking about? You know well enough. When Sherlock Holmes here sent your great uncle to the gallows 20 years ago, the title and estate should have come to my father. When I leave here tomorrow, I'm going straight to the finest lawyer in London. Heavens, man, if you believe this, why have you said nothing about it till now? Because I'm smart. I've found out a thing or two since I've been staying here. And one of the things I found out is that your precious fiancé and her brother wouldn't look twice at you if it weren't for your money and the title. Shut up. You'll find out. She's a smart little filly, and she knows what kind of a track she's running Why, on. you dirty... My compliments, sir. A very professional uppercut. Yes, and a very well-deserved one. I... Offensive scoundrel. Sorry about this. Uh, please don't say anything in front of Betty. Don't be upset her. I quite understand. Come along, Watson. Let's go and find our rooms. Nearly dinner time. Why are we wandering about here in the dark instead of having a glass of sherry with the others in the library? I'm a conscientious practitioner, Watson. I like to earn my fees. It uh, occurred to me that a further examination of this dining hall might prove profitable. Well, personally, Holmes, I think you're wasting your time on this case. <laughs> what makes you think that, old chap? It's perfectly obvious that young American fellow was impersonating the ghost a few nights ago. He knew his father was going to die and he wanted to build up the legend... So as to make his own claim seem more believable. Well, very sound reasoning, Watson. Though to be logical in his deception, he should repeat the performance now that his father is dead. Well, ghosts only walk at midnight. So why don't we go and have a glass of sherry? Shh. Hmm? What is it, Holmes? And I'm coming in from the library. The lighted candle. Yes? Who is it? It's me, Mrs. McClintock. Oh, gracious me. You, you gave me quite a start. I heard voices, and I knew the candles were not alight in here, so I came in to see who it was. You're watching for the ghost, I suppose. Well, you'll no be disappointed, gentlemen, though you may see more than you bargain for. Those that meddle with ghostly things they do not comprehend are playing with something much more dangerous than fire. Fire burns. But the shades on dead people... Holmes, Holmes, look up there in the gallery. The door's opening. It's the ghost. Aye, here he comes, the poor buddy. See the armor on him and the way he's dragging one leg behind him. Yes, it's really quite an effective impersonation. 
And the twilight provides most appropriate lighting for his play acting, too. You mean it's a young American? Of course. Obviously. Ah! Look, look behind him. There's another figure. Yes. Dressed in the same kind of armor and carrying a sword. The game's afoot, Watson. The ghost has seen him. He's turning. The second figure's raising his sword. Look out! Great heavens. He's knocked him through the railings. That must be a 20-foot fall. Come on, old fellow. Help me open his visor. Just a minute. Uh, yes. It's Walter McMorris, the American. Though from the angle of his head, I would suggest that it might be the late Walter McMorris. Eh, Watson? He's dead all right, Holmes. Neck broken. Meanwhile, the second figure has been able to slip back through that door and escape us. Come on, he was dressed in armor. He can't go very fast. Perhaps we can overtake him. Dr. Watson's story will continue in just a few seconds, which is all the time I need to tell you about Petri California Muscatel. Ever try Petri Muscatel? It's a wine that looks like sheer gold, and it's made from big, plump, juicy Muscat grapes. Boy, pop one of those Muscat grapes into your mouth, and you know you've got something delicious. You know that. And you get the same flavor in Petri Muscatel. It's a perfect wine to serve a lady. Women love it. And that best time to serve it is after dinner or on a Sunday afternoon. You know, times like that. But just make sure it's Petri Muscatel, because that's the way to make sure it's going to be good. Remember, Petri. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure and the story of The Limping Ghost of Loch Nair. Found it, Holmes. Uh, there's no trace of the ghost in the musician's gallery. We gave him too much of a start, I'm afraid. <laughs> of course you didn't find him. You'll never find him because he's not mortal. Mrs. McClintock, is the original suit of armor, the one worn by the first Earl of Loch Ness, still in the castle? Aye, sir. It's in the library through that door there. I'll take you to it. Don't bother, thank you. We'll find it. Come on, Watson. Bring that candle with you. All right, Joe. If you know what's good for you, you'll stop dabbling in matters your dinner really can. Holmes, what do you make of the second girl? Another imposter, obviously. But who could it have been? That's what we have to find out, old chap. Undoubtedly, someone knew that the American Walter McMorris was impersonating the ghost and used this macabre method to kill him. But why kill him? Possibly his claims to the title and estate were valid. Or perhaps some fanatic was so devoted to the Lucknair legend that he assumed the role of ghost and killed him for his sacrilege. Hold the candle a little higher, will you, old chap? Here you are. Hello. Here's a suit of armor, Holmes. Lying in a heap on the floor. Oh, on the floor, eh? Whereas it obviously belongs on that stand over there. It's perfectly clear what's happened. The second figure used this armor and slipped it back in here while we were examining the dead man. Possibly, Watson, possibly. At least this armor gives us a definite clue. But it limits the field of possible suspects. How do you mean, Holmes? Well, it's an interesting fact that the human race has grown definitely larger in the past 400 years. Very few modern men can wear authentic ancient armor like this. For example, take the first item on... The top of the heap lying on the floor here. These gauntlets of chain mail. Try them on. Well, much too small for exactly. me. Either you nor I could have worn this suit. No, no, no nor could young Nolan, the estate agent. Whereas his sister could have done. Yes, so could Thomas the butler. He's a small fellow. And if it comes to that, Watson, our distinguished client, the young Earl of Loch is himself a small man. Right, Joe, so he is. And he might easily have had a motive. 
Young McMorris had disputed his right to the title earlier in the day. But we mustn't jump to conclusions. Nevertheless, you see what valuable evidence this armor has become. Hello, hello. It sounds as if the rest of the party are on the scene. Yes, I suggest that we join them without making any reference to this suit of armor. Remember, old chap, one of them in there is a murderer. And we may have to set a trap to catch him. Uh, are you sure he's dead, Dr. Watson? There's no doubt about it. His neck was broken instantly by the fall. It's dreadful. Father and son both dying on the same day. And you say the real ghost came up behind him, Mr. Holmes, and struck him so they crashed through the railing up there? I said another figure dressed in armor and killed him, Mr. Nolan. It was a real ghost. I saw him with my own two eyes. He killed that man for trying to bring shame on the name of Loch Nair. Couldn't we get in touch with the police? How can I get a message to them tonight? Have you looked outside? We're almost completely snowed in. Snowed in? Oh, Alec, I'm frightened. Now, hush, darling. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. No, at least we have the assurance that the ghost will not limp again. Why? Well, the murderer has no further motive for impersonating the ghost. To walk now would be to support the dead American's claims. No. We shall spend a quiet night, and tomorrow I shall communicate with the proper authorities as to my quite definite notions regarding the murderer's identity. Uh, but if the ghost should walk again, Mr. Hurd... Well, then, sir, I shall know that at last I have encountered a truly supernatural crime and shall retire from the practice of, uh, of detection. It's nearly two o'clock. You still over there by the window, puffing away that pipe of yours? Oh, you know, I can't help being that young Morris knows a great deal more than he told us. A great deal more. There's a shifty look about him I don't like. Never did trust a fellow. Could look you squarely in the eyes. Don't you feel the same way, Holmes? Holmes. Holmes, where are you? Holmes! Shh, right, Watson. Where have you been? I thought you were over there by the window. I've uh, been talking to myself. Never mind that, old chap. Get your slippers on and your dressing gown. We're on the last lap of this strange, eventful tragedy. Oh, thank the Lord for that. Perhaps I can get some sleep. Holmes, where have you been? I went to the musician's gallery and baited the trap. Now it's ready to spring. Don't dawdle, Watson. Come I'm on, come on. I'm not dawdling. I'm not dawdling. What do you mean you, you baited a trap? You'll see for yourself in a few moments. As a matter of fact, I really baited it when I said downstairs that if the real ghost should walk again, I would retire from the practice of detection. I didn't understand you saying that myself. Well, I was tempting the murderer to show his hand once more. Come on, come on, please. Where are we going? To wait behind the curtain at the foot of the stairs leading to the musician's gallery. And I hope we don't have to wait very long. Not certain, but hopeful. Extremely hopeful. You know who it is, don't you? Yes. But my proof is too thin for a court of law. I must catch him in the act. Here he comes. Splendid. Let's go up and grab him. No, 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 no. They walk into my trap. He's coming towards the head of the stairs. Oh! Great Scott! Exactly. A simple piece of wire stretched across the gallery is remarkably effective. Even with ghosts. Come on, Watson. Help me off with this visor. There we are. 
Good oh. Lord, it's... Oh. It's James Nolan. Exactly. Oh. What's happened? You walked into a simple trap, my friend. I'm afraid the next trap will be more lethal. For it will undoubtedly prove to be the one beneath the gallows. Now that we're headed back for London, Holmes, perhaps you'll settle one or two points in the case that are bothering me quite a bit. Oh, with pleasure, my dear chap. What are they? I still don't see what Nolan's motive was in murdering the American. Oh, that should be obvious. He wanted to ensure that his sister's fiancée would enjoy undisputed title to the name and estates. Well, how did you know it was Nolan? When I examined the authentic suit of armor, you see, it was um, obvious it had never been worn. But I still don't quite oh, understand. Oh, come now, old chap. Huh? The suit of armor was in a heap on the floor. Yeah. And if it had been hastily discarded and get, um, well, the gauntlets were on top of the pile, you remember? Well, that's right, they were. If the suit had really been worn, the gauntlets would have been the first things to have been taken off, and so would have been uh, underneath the pile. Hmm? Obviously, therefore, the armor had been disarranged in order to make people believe the real ghost had walked. <laughs> After the American's death, the suspects were four. Miss Nolan, her brother, Thomas, the butler, and... Earl himself. Well, I ruled out Mrs. McClintock because, you remember, she was standing behind us at the time of the murder. Well, I'm beginning to understand. All the suspects except Nolan were small enough to have worn the armor. That's right. Therefore, only he could have pretended to use it. Pretended? But he, he did use it. Oh, no, my dear fellow. Undoubtedly, he procured a similar one of modern manufacture. An amazing case, Holmes. An interesting one, at any rate. And once again, old fellow, I'm possibly reminded of an old Scottish litany. Scottish litany? Which one's that? Oh, you remember it. From ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. <laughs> Good Lord, deliver us. Well, Doctor, that was really a swell story. You know, for a while there, I was beginning to believe in ghosts. Well, I'm ashamed to admit it, but at the time, so was I. <laughs> you know, this sounds silly, but I bet it would be fun to be one of those legendary English ghosts. You know, go around sticking your nose into everybody's business and playing practical jokes like mad and nobody able to figure out who did it. That would really be fun in a way. Well, you can go around scaring people all you want to, but not for me. I think a ghost leads a terrible life myself. For instance, a ghost can't have the pleasure of eating a nice, juicy steak. Yeah, or drinking a glass of really good wine. Ah, now you're talking, young fellow, my lad. Petri wine. You're still talking, young fellow. You see, when I say good wine, I always mean Petri wine because you can depend on Petri. I know, I know. Why, the Petri family has been making wine for generations. Handing on down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. When you realize they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s, well, common sense tells you the Petri family knows practically all there is to know about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into clear, fragrant wine. Yep, whether you're looking for a swell wine to serve before dinner or with dinner or after dinner, for any occasion, you just can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Doctor, what story are you going to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a strange adventure that Holmes and I had in the English countryside. It concerns the apparent madness of a certain Colonel Warburton and the puzzling mystery of two dead dogs.
Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Crooked Man. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. So when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, pet, Petri. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. How do you do? This is Clive Crook. Today I want to tell you something about the special branch of Scotland Yard. I expect you've heard of it. Judging from some detective novels, you'd imagine it consisted of a group of super Sherlock Holmeses who are called in when everything else has failed. But that is not true, is it, Percy? No, Clive. The special branch of Scotland Yard is a unit of a couple of hundred men who specialize in political crimes. They differ from their colleagues of the Criminal Investigation Department in that they must be able to speak several languages. In fact, the function of the special branch in official language is to guard the security of the state. Or, as the boys themselves put it, to clear up political nuisances. So today, a special branch man may find himself guarding the king or the prime minister, probing the antecedents of political refugee who seeks the protection of British nationality, tracking down the perpetrators of a bomb outrage, or sauntering among the guests at a royal garden party. Clive, why don't you tell them the story of the absent-minded professor? All right, Percy, I will. It's a story which shows the far-reaching significance of political crime and how, wherever an international conspiracy may start, sooner or later its tentacles will come within the reach of the long arm of the special branch of Scotland Yard. Ottawa, Canada, September 1945. One war is over, but for at least one of the great powers, another war, a secret war of information, a nerve war has never ceased. It is late in the evening, and the offices of the Canadian Ministry of Justice are almost deserted. The last few employees are on the way home, and one of the officials is evidently trying to get rid of a late visitor. Mr. Mr. 
coming in to see us, sir, but I'm afraid there's really nothing I can do about it. Why don't you write us a letter? But you don't understand. But I'm very sorry, sir, but I'm afraid I have to go now. Okay. Thanks for calling but in. But please... I'm very sorry. Yeah. Phew. I thought I'd never get rid of that guy. What do you want? Oh, some screwball. Said he came from the Soviet embassy. Wanted to show me some secret documents. You're kidding. No, but I guess he was. Tried to tell me all about some fifth column. Crazy guy. What's his name? Oh, I don't know. Here. Here's a slip he sent in. Ooh. Igor G.O.U. Kuzenko. Igor Guzenko. 25-year-old cipher clerk. Employed in the code room of the military section of the Soviet embassy in Ottawa. Igor Guzenko. A man whose story was to shock the world. A man whose information was to bring to justice traitors of three nations who'd endeavored to betray the Allies' greatest secret, the atom bomb. But this September night, Igor Guzenko is finding it very hard to tell his story. Nobody believes him. And yet all the time he knows that at the Soviet embassy his desertion will have been discovered. Already his one-time colleagues will be moving into action against him. What can he do? To whom can he turn? Inspector McLean. Where? Who's that? Kuzenko's. Uh, well, who are these guys breaking in? Hmm? From the Soviet embassy. Searching the place, eh? Well, listen, have you, have you traced Kuzenko? Oh, you picked him up. Oh, he wanted to be arrested. Well, don't blame him. Well, now, listen, hold on to Kuzenko and all his papers. Get hold of his family and don't let anybody see him. Yeah. Well, move him out of town and come back to me for instructions. Now, remember, nobody must see Guzenko. In a matter of hours, it was clearly established that not only were Guzenko's documents genuine, but that they included copies of four recent and secret telegrams exchanged between the British and Canadian governments on highly confidential matters. And realizing the complete freedom which exists in Canada and convinced that the Communist Party in democratic countries has changed long ago from a political party into an agency net for the Soviet government. A fifth column in these countries to meet a war. I decided that I could no longer serve my government, but must at last speak the truth. The Canadian police authorities found in Kuzenko's documents a fascinating story of how, in secret code, the Soviet military attaché in Ottawa had given information and received instructions from Moscow. Message to Zabotu, Ottawa. Your immediate objectives are... One, the atomic bomb, its composition and technological processes. Two, a sample of uranium-235. Three, the library and secret documents of the National Research Council. Four, latest developments of electronic fuses for shells, radar, and a super-explosive known as RDX. You are welcome to Moscow. Facts are given by Alec. One, the test of the atomic bomb was conducted in New Mexico. The bomb dropped on Japan was made of uranium-235. Two, Alec handed over to us a sample of uranium-235. 
Free, Alec has also reported brief data concerning electronic shells. There is in the shell a small radio transmitter with one electronic tube, and it is fed by dry batteries. The body of the shell is the antenna. Moscow to Sabota. Work out and telegraph arrangements for the meeting and password of Alec with our man in London. Sabota in Moscow. Alec will work in King's College, Tran. Meetings October 7, 17, 27. On the street in front of the British Museum. In time, 11 o'clock in the evening. Identification sign, a newspaper under the left arm. Password, best regards to Michael. But even Moscow realized that their boys in Britain might have rather a busy evening identifying Alec from the number of Londoners with newspapers under their arms in Museum Street at 11 o'clock in the evening. They replied... Arrangements not satisfactory. Correction. Facing British Museum. Intersection Great Russell Street, Museum Street. Time, 8 o'clock, October 7, 17, 27. Identification signs. Alec will have under his left arm the newspaper Times. The contact man will have in his left hand the magazine Picture Post. Convey instructions to Alec. Convey instructions to Alec. Who was Alec? The Canadian police authorities at once placed the facts of this alarming leakage of atomic secrets before Prime Minister Mackenzie King. Realizing the grave implications of the plot, Mr. King hastened to Washington to acquaint President Truman with the situation. Four days later, the Canadian Prime Minister crossed the Atlantic and repeated the story to British Premier Mr. Clement Attlee. Officials of British military intelligence were called to Downing Street. The investigation was entrusted to Lieutenant Colonel Leonard Burt. Bert, a pre-war yard chief, was seconded to the war office at the beginning of the war for anti-sabotage work. Incidentally, today, he's back at the yard in command of the special branch. The colonel's immediate and priority mission was to identify Alec. Well, I don't expect we shall have much trouble finding out who Alec is. Our main problem is going to be to get him, to find out how much he knows, and even more important, how much he has told. Yes, sir. Now, let's have a look at those cables again. Ah, here we are. Alec will work in King's College, Strand. Give him the phone directory. Here we are, sir. Thank you. Okay. Uh, King's College, Temple Bar 5651. Well, hello, King's College. I'll put him through to the principal's office, will you? Thank you. Oh, hello. Uh, this is Lieutenant Colonel Burt of the War Office. I wonder if you could help me. It's just a routine inquiry. I want to know whether you have on your staff at the moment a physicist who has recently worked in Canada. Yes, that's right. Oh, up to a few months ago? You have? Oh, good. I see, yes. Yes, that's right. He went with a research group on a project in Montreal, and he's just come back to London. Good. And uh, what's his name? Dr. Nun May. Thank you, that'll be all. Sounds like our man. And October the 7th looks like our day, sir. Four days from now, we'll have to get busy. As October the 7th approached, a number of well-built but unobtrusive men began renting rooms in Museum Street. Rooms with first-floor windows which looked out onto the forecourt of the British Museum. In this and many other ways, known only to MI5 and the special branch, every inch of the place of rendezvous was covered by one or two observers.
Inspector Burt? Sergeant Wilson here, sir. All right, Wilson. I know you haven't seen him. Not a sign, sir. That's not surprising. I've just had a report from the man who shadowed him from King's College. He left there at half past six, went straight home, had supper, and according to his last call, he's now sitting in front of the fire, doing guest what? Search me, sir. Playing patience. Playing patience. And if anybody knows how to play patience, it's the men of the special branch. On October the 7th, they drew a blank, but they still had two more chances. Dr. Nunmay was shadowed constantly, but always unobtrusively. On October the 17th, and again on the 27th, the watchers by the British Museum kept their vigil. But Dr. Nunmay did not keep his appointment. It's no use, Wilson. He must have been warned. Do you think he's suspicious, sir? Oh, he may know he's being watched, but I don't think so. Not yet, anyway. What do you mean, not yet, sir? I think it's about time Dr. Nunmay and I had a little talk. I'm going round to King's College. How do you do, Professor? Uh, my name is Bert, Inspector Bert of Military Intelligence. Uh, how do you do? Uh, military Intelligence, did you say? Oh, that's right. I don't want to waste your time, Professor, so I'll come straight to the point. Are you aware that there's been a leakage of confidential information in Canada relating to atomic energy? Really, Inspector? I don't know what to say. Uh, uh, certainly, it's the first I've heard of it. The first you've heard of it? Of course, I must say, Inspector, that I don't read the papers very much. I wasn't suggesting that you'd have read it in the papers. I was wondering whether you'd uh, had some first-hand knowledge. What do you mean, Inspector? Just this. I want you to answer one or two questions for me. During the period you spent in Canada in connection with the Atomic Energy Commission, were you approached at any time or by any person to give information concerning your work? Certainly not. And, and I think I should say, Inspector, that, that if the Department of the War Office you represent is concerned with uh, counter-espionage or anything of that nature, I'm not prepared to answer any of your questions. But you do say that you were not approached and did not give any information whatsoever. That is correct. Inspector Burt sensed that despite his answers and his bold front, the little professor was rather worried. When the special branch finds that a suspect is worried, they usually proceed to worry him just a little more. All right, Wilson. There are your instructions starting tomorrow. I want the men in Stafford Street and everybody who's covering none made to change their technique. So far, their aim has been to be as unobtrusive as possible. From tomorrow, I want Dr. Nunmay to know that he's being watched. So the men of MI5, under the direction of Inspector Burt, began the next phase of the war they were conducting against the little professor. In the next few days, the shadowing was performed in a manner scarcely creditable to the reputation of Scotland Yard. Meantime, a message had been sent to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who were instructed to inquire how closely Dr. May's travels had fitted into the pattern outlined for Alec in the cables which had been intercepted between Moscow and Ottawa. Royal Canadian Mounted Police to Burt, Special Branch, Scotland Yard. Information supplied by Dr. John Douglas Cocroft, Chief of the Atomic Energy Project at Montreal, shows Dr. May made several trips to the nuclear research laboratories of the Manhattan Project at Chicago, coinciding entirely with the reports from Alec. 
Dr. May left for England within a few days of his last trip to the research laboratories and is scheduled to return for a month's work next year. Everything checks up with the information in our possession concerning Alex. And the signal goes on to say that no other scientist has followed the same schedule or is planning to return next year. Yes, everything fits. It must be, Dr. Nunmay. Meantime, officials of the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation had entered the story. The information concerning Dr. May was sent to the headquarters of the Manhattan Engineer District in Washington, D.C. One of the fundamental principles of United States military intelligence is that personnel on secret projects are entitled to know only as much as they require to carry on their work. Thus, months before, when the National Research Council of Canada had proposed that Dr. May be allowed to visit the United States for one month, the application had been placed before General Groves personally. The general had sent for the file on Dr. May. It included the information that Dr. May had already visited the Chicago Atomic Research Laboratories three times, and that this third visit occurred between September 25 and October the 30th, 1944. He carried on extensive work in collaboration with other scientists in a highly secret and important new field. His work resulted in a research report in which he collaborated with an American scientist. To Groves, a fourth visit by May to the United States ran counter to security principles, for it would allow him to know too much of what was going on in widely separated projects. Accordingly, the answer had gone back, polite but firm, no. If vital secrets in the field of atomic energy still rest secure, much credit must be given to General Groves' decision to bar Dr. May. For as the Canadian Royal Commission of Inquiry had stated, the Soviets failed to obtain details on the structure of the atomic bomb only because there was no one in Canada who could tell them. That all this was in the future. Back in London in September 1945, Lieutenant Colonel Burt had still to complete his case against Dr. Nunmay. After waiting for one more week, during which the professor must have been well aware that he was being shadowed by the yard, the colonel went back to see the professor again. So you see, professor... I thought it would be a good idea if I came back to have another little talk with you. Yes. Yes. You see, I wanted to tell you that we know that you had an appointment to meet someone in the vicinity of the British Museum shortly after your return from Canada. Well? Who was that person? And why didn't you keep the appointment? Yes, you're quite right. I didn't keep the appointment. And who was the person? When I came back to London, I, I decided to wash my hands of the whole business. What business? The, the, the matter this person was going to see me about. It's no use, Professor. You see, we know too much. I tell you, I have nothing more to say. I think you will have something more to say. And I am quite prepared to wait until you are ready to say it. I, I absolutely refuse. If you think you can persuade me into making some sort of statement... Inspector Bird didn't think. He knew. He realized that a man like Dr. Nunmay, conscious of the fact he was being followed, nervous and frightened, would in the end have to come clean. Well, Dr. Nunmay didn't tell the whole truth. But at least he started to tell part of the truth, and at the end of this interview, he gave a long statement. About a year ago, whilst in Canada, I was contacted by an individual whose identity I declined to divulge. He, he called on me at my private apartment in Swale Avenue, Montreal. He apparently knew I was employed by the Montreal Laboratory, and he sought information from me concerning atomic research. I gave and had given very careful consideration to uh, correctness of making sure that development of atomic energy was not confined to the USA. I took the very painful decision uh, that it was necessary to convey general information on atomic energy and make sure that it was taken seriously. For this reason, I, I decided to entertain a proposition made to me by the individual who called on me. 
After this uh, preliminary meeting, I, I met the individual on several subsequent occasions in Canada. He made specific requests for information which were just nonsense to me. What do you mean by that? I could not understand what he was talking about. Did he ask you for samples of uranium? Yes, and for information generally on atomic energy. And do you admit to giving him samples? Yes. Uh, at one meeting, I gave the man uh, microscopic amounts of U-233 and U-235, uh, one of each. The U-235 was a slightly enriched sample and was in a small glass tube and consisted of about a milligram of oxide. The U-233 was about a tenth of a milligram and was a very thin deposit on a platinum foil and was wrapped with a piece of paper. What else did you give him? I uh, also gave him a written report on uh, atomic research as known to me. This information was mostly of a character which has since been published or is about to be published. Anything else? Uh, the man... Uh, also asked for information about the American electro uh, electronically controlled ACAC shells. And what did you do? I knew very little about these, and so could only give very little information. Anything else? He also asked to people employed in the laboratory, including a man named Beale, but I advised him against him. And uh, what did he give you? He gave me some dollars. How many? I forget how many. He gave me a whiskey bottle. I, I accepted these against my will. I see. And when was your last contact? Before I left Canada. It was arranged that on my return to London, I was to keep an appointment with somebody I did not know. I, I was given precise details as to making... Uh, what were those details? I forget them now. Why didn't you keep the appointment? Because I had decided that this clandestine procedure was no longer appropriate in view of the official release of information and the possibility of satisfactory international control of atomic energy. I see. Is that the end of your statement? Yes. The, the, the whole affair was extremely painful to me. I only embarked on it because I felt that this was a contribution I could make to the safety of mankind. I certainly did not do it for gain. So much for the professor's statement. The special branch of Scotland Guard had already unearthed more incriminating evidence. Here we are, sir. I've made a summary of these papers that have come in from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mr. Dennett. Oh, thank you. Let's see. Dr. Nunmay, etc., etc., etc. Ah, ardent communist. Here's just what I expected. Hmm, I see they picked up eight of his friends in Canada. And do you see this, Wilson? Definite statements. The doctor visited other atomic projects at the request of the Soviet embassy. Well, I think our case is ready now. It's about time we brought in the director of public prosecutions. Bring in all the other files on the case. And so it happened that a few days later... While Dr. Nunmay was lecturing a class of students at King's College on the subject of nuclear theory, he had a visit from the special branch. And that, I think, brings us almost to the end of our work today. We have, of course, only touched upon one phase of the subject of nuclear theory. And I hope that tomorrow afternoon I shall have the chance of dealing with chapters 7 and 8 in the papers under discussion and that we managed to write a lot of ground. <clears throat> uh, that will be all. <coughs> Excuse me, just one moment, please. Uh, yes, what is it? You are Dr. Nunmay. Yes. I have a warrant for your arrest. I must warn you. Uh, yes, that... yes, I, I was expecting something like this. Well, if you'll just follow me. And so Dr. Nunmay was not able to continue his lecture the following day. For he had a pressing appointment at Bow Street where the following morning he was formally charged with... Having for a purpose prejudicial to the safety and interests of the state, 
communicated to some persons unknown certain information calculated to be directly or indirectly useful to an enemy, contrary to the Official Secrets Act of 1911. At the Old Bailey, Mr. Justice Oliver said... I have listened with slight surprise to some of the things learned counsel has put before me. The picture of you as a man of honor who had only done what you believed to be right. I do not take that view at all. How any man in your position could have had the crass conceit, let alone the wickedness, to arrogate to himself the decision of a matter of this sort, where you yourself had given your written understanding not to do it, and knew it was one of the country's most precious secrets, when you yourself had drawn and were drawing pay for years to keep your bargain with your country. That you could have done this is a dreadful thing. I think that you acted not as an honorable man, but as a dishonorable man. I think that you acted with degradation. Whether money was the object of what you did, in fact, you did get money for what you did. It is a very bad case indeed. The sentence upon you is one of ten years' penal servitude. Well, that isn't quite the end of the story, because after the trial... There were many protests that the sentence was out of all proportion to the magnitude of the offense committed. The Association of Scientific Workers issued a statement in which they declared... We do not seek to justify Dr. May's breach of the Official Secrets Act, but we are convinced from our knowledge of Dr. May that his action was determined only by the principle that fundamental scientific data should have been shared with a country that was not only friendly, but a fighting ally. The only work in which Dr. May was engaged, and on which he could have been in a position to give unauthorized information, concerned fundamental scientific data relating to atomic energy. Dr. May had no connection whatever with problems of the construction of the atomic bomb, and could not have been able to reveal information on atomic bomb manufacture. Mm, what about that, Percy? Oh, and by the way, I was going to ask you, why do you call this the case of the absent-minded professor? Because, Clive, while the professor may have been internationally minded about the secrets of atomic energy, you must remember he also gave away the secrets of electronic shells. Mm, you've got something there, Percy. But you know what these absent-minded professors are? Which reminds me of a story. Time's up, Clive. Yes, I'm afraid it is. But I have to leave it until next week. Well, that's all for today. This is Clive Brook saying goodbye and uh, pleasant dreams.
That's Case Closed for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember to visit the website for more from Sherlock Holmes, Secrets of Scotland Yard, Case Closed, thousands of other old-time radio episodes, all available for free, made possible by your donations. If you'd like to help support this and all the shows, donate.relicradio.com or click on the link on the website. Thanks for all of your support. Thanks for joining me this week. I'll be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.